0: Welcome to Creekside. Happy Father's Day uh, to all the dads in the audience. This Wednesday night we are starting a four-week study uh, with one week off in the middle there, but it's going to be called Address the Mess. Um, So it's a series from Andy Stanley, and we will be uh, having a gathering here uh, to watch that together. Don't forget about the 4th of July coming up in a month. Uh, There should be sheets out front that you can grab, take home with you, Share them with any coworkers or neighbors, friends that you want to invite. Uh, it should be just a great time to get together, have some food and uh, fellowship that we're going to be providing popcorn and water uh, close to fireworks time. And then just the last thing is uh, next week we are starting a new series from the Book of Psalms. So we are excited about that. So today is our final sermon from the current series. Uh, so uh, with that I'll have Steve come on up.
1: Pray with me if you would as we look at this last portrait of faith. Father, we come this morning uh, worshiping a God uh, who is far greater and able to do far greater, able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to His power which works mightily within us. To Him be glory in the church through Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would be honored Heavenly Father, that you would be magnified, that you would be lifted up, and that our lives would be changed. Some of us, that you would take us from the domain of darkness and translate us into the kingdom of your dear Son. And some of us who have been so translated and so changed and transformed that you would continue to work in us to conform us to the image of Christ in whose precious name we pray. Amen. In one of the opening scenes of the movie, God's Not Dead, uh, the philosophy professor walks into the classroom of young neophyte students and says, we're going to dispense with all of the formalities. And uh, you you got it? Okay, we're going to show it. I am Professor Radisson.
0: This is philosophy one, five, zero. I would like to bypass senseless debate altogether and jump to the conclusion which every sophomore is already aware of, there is no God. All that I require from each of you is that you fill in the papers I've just given you with three little words, God is dead. Mr. Wheaton, there's something wrong. I can't do what you want, I'm a Christian. If you cannot bring yourself to admit that God is dead, then you will need to defend the antithesis. So your acceptance of this challenge may be the only meaningful exposure to God and Jesus they'll ever have.
1: In that scene, the professor comes in and he says, here's what we want you to do. I want you to get out a piece of paper, and what I want you to write on the piece of paper are these three words, because we're going to operate on this premise. God is dead. That's what he asked them to do. There's one young man in the class, only one, maybe there's more more Christians, but there's only one young man bold enough to sit there and say, I'm not going to write that because I'm a Christian and I believe that God is, is alive. It's an example, an illustration of the way the world, the hostility of the world in which we live, brings believers, those who profess faith in Jesus Christ, to the point that we must fight for what we believe. It's an example of it. It's a, it's a fictional, it's a example of what could be in reality. What the U.S. Supreme Court ruled on in early 2018, saying that the Masterpiece Cake Shop in Colorado did not have to pay fines to a, a couple that wanted them to make their wedding cake, and they refused to make the wedding cake because it went against their Christian convictions is a real-life example. It's an actual example of the pressure that we in a contrary world are faced increasingly with. That is, are we going to have the courage to stand up for what we believe? Are we going to have courage to be believers in a contrary world? Thankfully, God has given us throughout Scripture many examples of those who have courage to guide us in our quest to remain faithful in the face of a world that is increasingly hostile towards our faith. And I've chosen to look at the person of Mordecai in the book of Esther, which you read the book of Esther, and it's titled Esther, and you think it's about Esther, and it is about Esther. It's also about Mordecai, but I would say this from the beginning more than either one of those human beings, the book of Esther is about God. Never mentioned by name in the book, and that's all the book is about, is about God. And as we look at Mordecai's life, I see from his example, it provides us not only an example to follow, but encouragement to remain faithful. And so there are three facets of Mordecai's courage that are brought to light that serve as an example for you and I in our quest to remain faithful. And his example provides us with a a compulsion, I think, to be courageous, compels us to be courageous. It comforts us in knowing that God is on our side. And it also provides a challenge to those who are here maybe this morning that aren't trusting in Jesus, that, hey, this God who really is in charge of all this stuff is worthy of our devotion and worthy of our praise. So first of all, the first facet is to, the, the, the conduct of our courage. Now, admittedly, there's ten chapters in Esther. So we're going to be flying from a pretty high vantage point, and so I would encourage you to go back and read and reread the, the text later. But we're seeing, first of all, in chapter 1, and I'll give you the breakdowns, verses 1 through chapter 4, verse 17, that our the conduct of our courage, and it's manifest in two different settings in Mordecai's life. On this Father's Day, how fitting that the father of Esther, the adoptive father of Esther, lays out for us some really good examples. First of all, uh, we see the courage to care for family in his life. And there's three ways he did it. I'm going to read down through the text, beginning in chapter 1, verse 1. So if you have your Bibles or your tablet or your phone, assuming that it works, uh, you can uh, connect and we'll read together. Now, it took place in the days of Ahasuerus, The Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. This guy was a big deal. And he was a very powerful person. In those days, as King Ahasuerus sat on the royal throne, which was in Susa, the capital, in the third year of of his reign, he gave a banquet for all the princes and attendants of the army officers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of his provinces being in his presence. And he displayed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his great majesty for many days. A 180-day party. That's a pretty big deal. And when... These days were completed. The king gave a banquet lasting seven days for all the people who were present in Susa the capital from the greatest to the least in the court of the garden of the king's palace. And there were hangings of fine uh, white and violet linen held by cords of purple linen on silver rings and marble columns and couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry marble and mother of pearl and precious stones. And it was a grand gala I'm sorry, that wasn't in the Bible. Okay, verse 7. Drinks were served in golden vessels of various kinds, and the royal wine was plentiful according to the king's bounty. And the drinking was done according to the law, there was no compulsion. For the king had given orders to each official of his household that he should do according to the desires of each person. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the palace which belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman and Bista and Harbona and Bigtha and Abigtha, and Zithar. And carcass, the seven eunuchs who were who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to display her beauty, so the people and the princes for, so the people and the princes for she was beautiful, but Queen Vashti refused to come to the king's at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. Then the king became very angry, and wrath burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for it was the custom of the king, so to speak, before all who were, uh, knew the law and justice, and were close to him, Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meres, Marisa, and Mimucan. The seven eunuchs, the seven princes, I'm sorry, of Persia and Media, who had access to the king's presence and sat in the first place in the kingdom. And according to the law, what is to be done with Queen Vashti? Because she did not obey the command of the king Ahasuerus and declined uh, delivered by the eunuchs. And in the presence of the king and the princes, Memumake, Memucan the, said, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also all the princes and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, causing them to look with contempt on their husbands by saying Qu- King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti so t- uh, to be brought in the pre- into the presence, but she did not come. And this day the ladies of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's conduct will speak in the same way to all the king's princes and there will be plenty of contempt and anger. If it pleases the king, let the royal edict be issued by him and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media so that it cannot be repealed that Vashti should come no more into the presence of King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is more worthy than she." And when the king's edict, which which he shall make, is heard throughout all this kingdom, great... As it is, then all women will give honor to their husbands, great and small. And this word pleased the king and the princes. And the king did as Mamukan proposed. So he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province according to its script, and every people according to their language, and that every man should be the master of his own house and the one who speaks in the language of his own people. And after these things, when the anger of the king Ahasuerus had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done. And what had been decreed against her. Then the king's attendants, who served him, said, Let beautiful young virgins be brought to the king. Let the king appoint overseers in all the provinces of his kingdom, that they may gather every beautiful young virgin to Susa, the capital, to the harem, into the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch who is in charge of the women, and let their cosmetics be given them. And then let the young lady who pleases the king be queen in place of Vashti. And the matter pleased the king, and he did accordingly. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the capital, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been taken into exile from Jerusalem in the capital, With the captives who had been exiled with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had exiled, and he was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. Now, the young lady was beautiful of form and face, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Now, long reading of the text, but it sets the context. Mordecai demonstrated courage in relationship to caring for his family. First of all, in the sense that he adopted Esther. He adopted Esther. He took the responsibility on himself, the physical, the emotional, the spiritual leadership and direction and care for his cousin. As he should. Esther, whose name means star in uh, that language, not in Hebrew, but it means star. And we see that the, the book, the events that we're ta- reading about in the book of Esther take place historically, chronologically, between the events that are recorded in Ezra chapter 1, through chapter 6, which is the rebuilding of the temple. And then there's a break between that chapter, chapter 6 and chapter 7 and 10, which is the rebuilding of the spiritual nature of the people through Ezra. So all that we see takes place between those two chapters. And what happens is that Nestor, king Ahasuerus, is self-indulgent and he wants to parade his wife in front of everybody and she refuses. And so he dethrones her and lurks for another. And Mordecai just happened to be living in Susa the capital. And Mordecai just happened to be in charge of his cousin Esther. Just happened that she was a looker, beautiful of form and face. It just happened that she was brought in to be paraded like, you know, the Miss America contest, you know, that's how they picked the queen, you know, just Miss America contest. It didn't really matter. He was just looking for the best-looking woman and, and that pleased him, and that's how it went down, and he courageously took her in. And then I think, I see from the text that he didn't just adopt her, but he instructed her. If you look at verse 8, it says, so it came about when the command and decree of the king, chapter 2, I'm sorry, verse 8, were heard, and many young ladies were gathered to Susa the capital into the custody of Haggai, that Esther was taken to the king's palace into the custody of Haggai, who was in charge of the women. But it says in verse 10 that she did not disclose her heritage. She did not disclose who she was, that she was a Jewish person. She didn't disclose it. Not before, not during, not after. She didn't disclose who she was. And it says in chapter 2, verse 20, Esther had not yet made known after she had been accepted as the queen. She was the queen. Verse 20 of chapter 2, Esther had not yet made known her kindred or her people, even as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther did what Mordecai told her as he had done when under his care. Now, what's my point? She did what Mordecai commanded even after she was outside of his influence, even as she had done while under his care. Why? Because I believe she had been raised up to do what her father had commanded her to do according to the scriptures. He had taught her spiritually. She was obedient and honored her father as Exodus chapter 20 verse 12 says. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long on the earth. She was obedient to the truth of the word of God which she had learned from her father. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verses 6 and 7. And these things which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart and you shall speak to them, teach them diligently to your sons and to your daughters when you sit in your house when you walk along the way when you lie down and when you rise up and it seems to me that mordecai had been faithfully teaching esther the truths of the word of god and you note on this father's day young people that she was obedient to her father not only when she was under his care but even after she was outside of his influence she did what god had said and i believe that Mordecai had given that to her. And you know, it, it comes, it speaks to me of the difficulty we live in this age of being faithful as parents and grandparents to teach our children the truth. Because the truth is, first of all, unpopular. What did the college sophomores in the philosophy class, they were supposed to write on the paper, God is dead. That's the culture we live in. As parents, we teach, and believing parents, we teach our kids, God is alive. God is not dead. He is alive. And we, as created beings, are sinful. And God is holy. And we're separated from God. And because we are unholy people, because we sin, we deserve judgment. And because we deserve judgment, God sent His Son, Jesus, who died on the cross. And He paid the debt so that all who believe might live. We teach our kids that. We teach them that there is right and there is wrong, and they are responsible. That's not a very popular message in the world in which we live. No. And our methods are unnatural. One of the things that kind of shocked me as a Christian parent was how difficult it is to actually stay faithful in teaching my kids the ways of the Lord. I kind of thought that that would come naturally. Satan knows that that's the key. And so it is always a challenge. Well, I'm tired. Well, they're tired. Well, they don't really want to hear what I have to say. It's not really that interesting to them. They they don't really want to pay attention. Well, gobbledygook garbage, just do it. But it's not always that easy. It's tough. It's hard. And so there is this battle, but we see from Mordecai that he was faithful to teach her the ways of the Lord. When you sit in your house, when you walk along the way, when you lie down and when you rise up, in the daily course of our conversations, our interactions, we are to teach the truth. And I am impressed by Esther that she did, even when she was outside of his purview and outside of his influence, she did what Mordecai asked her to do because he was faithful. And then we see that he protected her. In chapter 2, look at verse 11. And every day Mordecai walked back and forth in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and how she fared. There's not a dad alive that's got any responsibility in him that isn't concerned about his uh, his his kids, and I always get this. My girls are a little bit uh, miffed that I, I tend to be a little more protective of them than I was our son. I say, well, okay, I'll I'll own that. You know, I'm I'm I'll own that. But here Mordecai was, he was protective of Esther. And then look at verse 19 of chapter 2. And it says, and when the, the virgins were gathered together the second time, then Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Verse 21 of chapter 2. In those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, I mean, he didn't want to leave her, let her out of his sight. And as a dad, I am protective of my girls. Some guy wants to come and date my daughters. We're going to have a little come-to-Jesus meeting. We're going to sit down there, and I'm going to have a baseball bat in my hand, and we're going to just have a little man-to-man talk. Now, what's your intentions with my daughter? And this is what I'm going to ask you to do, you know? And you're going to look me in the eye, and you're going to tell me that that's what you're going to do. And if you're not going to look me in the eye and tell me what we're going to do, the conversation's over. Uh, Don't let the door hit you on the way out. Now, I may, I may be a little bit exaggerating, but my daughters don't really like this little conversation that I have with these guys that come in. But I want to put the fear of God in them because they hurt my daughter. I'm going to break their legs. <laughs> no, maybe not. But I, I, I'm going I'm I'm to protect my girls. I'm going to protect my girls. And I call and I say, how are you doing? I want a report of what's going on. I want a report of where they're at, what's happening. I try to provide for their safety as in many ways as I can. I want them to have a car that works. I want them to have a phone so they can get a hold of me. I do. Mordecai took care of his daughter. So Mordecai cared for his family. That's one way that his conduct displayed courage. Then he was confronting of evil. That's another way that he displayed in conduct, the conduct of our courage is manifest. In chapter 2, verse 21, I want you to read with me. In those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's officials from those who guarded the door became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. But the plot became known to Mordecai, and he told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. Now, when the plot was investigated and found, it to be so, found to be so, they were both hanged on the gallows, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles of the King's Presence. How did Mordecai confront evil? Well, the first way that he confronted evil was he exposed the corruption. Here there was corruption. He overheard the conversation that they're going to take the king out. Now, I'm guessing that as a Jew in the Medo-Persian rule, Mordecai was probably not all that thrilled about Ahasuerus being the king. But despite his feelings for the king, in spite of the possible repercussions of being the rat, he exposed the corruption anyway. He didn't know what was going to happen as a result of it. The plot was foiled and the perps suffered (laughs) They got hanged, okay? A couple of years ago, I don't know, maybe some of you remember that uh, the Center for Medical Progress, their human capital project, they went incognito undercover with uh, cameras into several different Planned Parenthood organizational uh, places, and they exposed Planned Parenthood's uh, selling of, of fetal body parts. They exposed it, blew it wide open. Mordecai exposed it. As believers, do we have the courage to expose corruption? Corruption in our workplace. Corruption in our schools. Corruptions in society. Corruption in our family. Do we have the courage to expose it? Then Mordecai refused to compromise, not only did he expose corruption, but he refused to compromise. Look at chapter 3. After these events, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hammedatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and established his authority over all the princes who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For so the king had commanded Concerning him, but Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage. Then the king's servants, who were at the king's gate, said to Mordecai, Why are you transgressing the king's command? Now it was when they had spoken daily to him, daily to him, daily to him. Makes me think about Joseph, Genesis. Daily, daily, daily he was tempted, daily by Pharaoh's or Potiphar's wife, daily. He was tempted. And it says, Now it was when the king had spoken, uh, they had spoken to him daily to him, he would not listen to them, and that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's reason would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him, Haman was filled with rage. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews the people of Mordecai, who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. He refused to compromise. Well, why is that? Deuteronomy chapter 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Exodus chapter 20, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself any idol or any graven image, that you would fall down to it. And worship. There's only one God, and you worship Him. Out of His devotion to God, out of His obedient devotion to God, He refused to pay homage, which would have been the equivalent of worshiping, bowing down to some underling to the king, even though the king commanded it. Do you know the punishment for disobeying the king? Could have happened. So they went and they tested him. Why? Because he's a Jew. Because he's a guy who is a God fearing man. Haman was infuriated because his, his power base was threatened. And so he resorted to false accusations. You notice, if you read with me in chapter 3, verse 7, in the first month of the month of Nisan, of the twelfth year of the king Ahasuerus, that is, the lot was cast before Haman from day to day and from month to month until the twelfth month, that is, the month Adar. Then Haman said to king Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of all other people. And they do not observe the king's laws, so it is not in the king's interest to let them remain. False accusations. Now, were all of the laws of the Jews the same as those of the Medes and Persians? No, but not all of them were that different, necessarily. And even the ones that were different weren't all that uh, damaging or critical, but they were different, some. And then he goes on and exaggerates and says, well, they, they don't obey. They don't want to do anything. He wanted, Haman wanted to make it the obedience to the law of God to seem absolutely intolerable to the king. I would submit to you, if you're here this morning and you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, if you are a follower of Jesus and you pay any attention to what's going on in our country today, you will see a similar thing happening. The convictions that you hold are increasingly becoming labeled intolerable. Or shall I use the other buzzword, intolerant. How is it that God's definition of marriage as the union of one man and one woman for life is all of a sudden called into question? Well, it is. That's God's plan. It's, I'm, I'm just saying this is what God says. But in our culture, that's what we read and that's what we hear. Oh, no. Haman wasn't going to bow down. He was a man who followed God. He loved him with all his heart. I think of Daniel in Daniel chapter 6. Daniel refused to stop praying to God even after the king had commanded that anyone who bows down and prays to another god will be thrown in the lion's den. And Daniel had the courage to face the king. I think of Peter and John in Acts chapter 4 and they're told to stop speaking and preaching in the name of Jesus and they said whether it's right in the lives of God to obey you rather than or you the king or the prince of Philip or whatever, uh, I'm sorry whether it's right to obey the government or God, you be the judge as for me and us we're going with God what about you? What about me? Am I going with God? Or will I go with the king? Will I submit to what the king says? Or will I follow what God says? Mordecai's defiance was grounded in his devotion to God. Folks, I want to follow God. I want to follow his law and his path. If I end up in jail because of it, then I hope and pray that that will be the decision I make. I hope you too. That will be our deal. That's what he did. And it led to condemnation. He wanted to take out the entire people. Isn't it interesting? The only group of people in the United States that it's okay to be intolerant of are Christians. Seemingly. Everybody else, you have to tolerate. We did a college visit with my daughter, actually orientation. They don't have in the dean's office... Uh, you know, the, the advocate for Christian studies. They have advocates for a lot of other groups. Christians aren't among them. Why not? Why should our tax dollars go to support X group, but not this group? I don't know that they should go to support any group, but that's another story. Here he is. Mordecai used then communication. He didn't just resist. He didn't just expose. He he communicated. In chapter 4, we see him totally distraught, verse 1. And Mordecai learned all that had been done. He tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and wailed loudly and bitterly. He made it known. Folks, You saw pictures probably on the news of the family and friends who lost loved ones in the Santa Fe, Texas shooting, school shooting. Others, you've seen it. The whole world grieves. The whole world sees what's happening. Mordecai made it known that he was sorrowful. I wonder if if we feel grieved over the kind of offenses against God's people that are taking place. Do you know that... There is a movement on college campuses. It's, it's kind of diminished a little bit, but that there were only certain places where you could actually speak about Jesus called free speech zones. You know, some secluded place off in a remote part of campus where you could talk about Jesus. That's garbage. Do, do we grieve over that? And Mordecai was grieved that the entire people would be taken out. Then he asked for assistance. He went to Esther. Esther, you're in a place of power. So in chapter 4, verses 4 through 12, he goes to Esther and he says, you know, I need you to, to, to fast and pray. And, and, uh, and, and she was doing that. And she said, I, I want you, Mordecai says, you got to go before the king. And she says, verse 11, this is a risky business. All the king's servants and all the people of the king's provinces know that for any man or woman who comes to the king, to the inner court who is not summoned, he has but one law, that he be put to death unless the king holds out to him the golden scepter so that he may live. And I have not been summoned to come to the king for these 30 days. So they went and they told Mordecai, and Mordecai says, go anyway. Go anyway. are you willing? You've got this platform, Esther. You've got a position. Are you going to speak up for God's people or are you not going to speak up for God's people? John the Baptist. I don't know if you remember in Matthew chapter 12, but John the Baptist had a platform. He was in prison and uh, he kept saying to Herod, uh, you know, you really shouldn't have married your brother's wife. It really wasn't not a nice thing. He kept exposing the corruption had a platform, and he spoke out against it. And then he affirmed, Mordecai did, his, his dependence on God. Verses 13 through 17 in chapter 4. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Here's my reply, he says to them. Do not imagine, now get this, do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. First thing he says. What are you thinking, Esther? You're not exempt from this. You're a Jew. This could come down on you just like it comes down on anybody else. You're not exempt. You cannot escape the tentacles of this evil. Pastor Martin Niemoller during the after the Holocaust had this to say in the poem he wrote, "First they came. First they came to the socialists or for the socialists and I did not speak out. For I was not a socialist." Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. And then they came for us, and there was no one to speak out for us. You see, God puts us in places to be a platform. He says, Esther, you're not going to escape it. Then I love what he says next. In verse 14, For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. God is still in charge. Esther? And then the next statement, he says, You have an opportunity to be used of God to bring about the salvation of God's people. Who knows whether God will bring salvation, whether God has raised you up for such a time as this. I love it. You're not going to escape. Second thing is, God's going to save us anyway. So you might as well be on God's side. And who knows whether God has raised you up for such a time as this. And I say to you, I say to me, who knows whether God has raised us up for such a time as this. To speak out against evil. To confront it and to deal with it. Think of William Wilberforce. Fought against slavery in in England. Abraham Lincoln in the United States. Martin Luther King Jr. in the United States. They fought against evil. They confronted it. Mordecai and Esther both faced it, trusted God, and fought for what was right. Then we see the consequences of our courage. That's the conduct. Here's the consequence. It frustrates our enemies. In chapter 5, verse 1, now it came about on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court. Now here's the deal. Esther decides that she's going to address the king. So she goes to the king and she says, can you come to a banquet that I'm going to put on? And oh, by the way, bring Haman with you because he's the second in charge. He's a big shot, you know. And so Haman comes to the, uh, the queen. They drink wine and the king says, uh, what do you want, Esther? He says, I want you to come back tomorrow, she says. I want you to come back tomorrow and I'll tell you what, I'm, what I want. So then we pick up the story in chapter 5 verse 9. Then Haman went out that day Met with Esther, met with the king, he's in second in command, he's he's feeling pretty puffed up, pretty arrogant. And by the way, whenever he walks by, you're supposed to bow down and pay homage to Haman because he's a big shot, the king said so. And then we read this in verse 9, Then Haman went out that day glad and pleased of heart, puffed up. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate and that he did not stand up or tremble before him, Haman was filled with anger against Mordecai. I love it. He goes, "Well, you may, you may be full of yourself, but I really don't care too much about you. You're, you're, you're just. A, you put your jeans on just like I do. Only well, he didn't put jeans on. You put your robe on just like I do. You know. I don't care." He reminded that there's a reminder of his of his courage. He didn't stand up. He didn't tremble at Mordecai. Martin Luther. He was at the Diet of Worms. And he said, you must, they told him, you must recant of all that you said. And here's what Martin Luther says. Unless I'm convinced by the testimony of the Scripture or by clear reason, I cannot and will not recant anything. May God help me. Amen. Didn't turn out so well for Martin. But you know what? He didn't care. That's the kind of courage that I want to have. That's the kind of courage I want us to have as we face a contrary world. I'm here to please my father, not to please the crowd. And Haman was frustrated. Despite his prominence, Haman was tormented. Isn't it interesting how Mordecai, confident and trusting in God, could cause such consternation? Look at chapter 5, verse 13. Yet all of this does not satisfy me. Haman went back and whined to his people and, you know, moaning and groaning. Oh, the king is a big shot. I'm a big shot for the king. And I do all this stuff. But this Mordecai guy, he doesn't even bow down to me. And he says, verse 13, yet all of this does not satisfy me. Every time I see Mordecai the Jew, I love it, sitting at the king's gate. He doesn't get up. He doesn't bow down to me. He's just sitting there at the king's gate, and he doesn't hide. No, he's at the king's gate, so he knows Mordecai's going, or Haman's going by him. It's not like he was in a recluse position. He is there, and then there's this frustration of our enemies. Then there's this recognition of our courage. Chapter 6 is a marvelous thing. I always read the book of Esther and I go, why did Esther not just spill the beans the first time she had Haman and the king in front of her? She says, oh no, come back tomorrow. Well, it's so that chapter 6 can take place. Because in chapter 6, the king couldn't sleep. And the king is reading over all the, you know, I guess that's what you do when you're bored as a king. You kind of read over all the laws and things that you uh, you. Iter- reiterated, and he reads in there, just happened to read, how this guy by the name of Mordecai had foiled a, a death threat against him, and he says, well, what's happened to this Mordecai guy? Nothing. Well, we need to celebrate this Mordecai guy. Then enters Haman, just happened to be exactly at the time that the king has decided that we need to celebrate and honor the man who has protected the king, and so he asks Haman, what should be done for the person who has honored to honor the person uh, in, in my kingdom? Well, Haman's going, ah, what do I want done for myself? Well, you should put a crown on his head and a royal robe that the king has worn, and you should put him on one of the royal steeds that the king has ridden on, and you should parade him around the city saying, this is what's to be done for the man whom the king desires to honor. Comically, ironically, providentially, the king says, okay, yeah, take Mordecai and do that for him. What? That's exactly what he asked him to do. He, he did what he was supposed to do. He frustrated his enemies. Then he, 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 he sees that he recognized the, the, the courage of, of uh, the king, recognized the courage of Mordecai, and then we see the destruction of the enemies. Okay, so he did that and ends up, you know what ends up happening to Haman? Haman is exposed before Queen Esther. And he's, she's like, I don't know, what is he, attacking her or something? Because he, he knows that the king is going to kill him. Because she says, it's, this Haman guy wants to take out the Jews. And the king is infuriated. So he ends up hanging Haman on the gallows that Haman had constructed to hang Mordecai on. And then he gives Mordecai and Esther the right in the king's name, to write whatever they want to write to protect the Jews because Haman had sent down an edict that on a certain day all the Jews would be taken out. In chapter 8, verses 1 through 17, we see that they're protected. Chapter 9 is what happens now In the 12th, verse 1, Now in the 12th month, that is the month Adar, on the 13th day when the king's command and edict were about to be executed, on the day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, it was turned to the contrary, so that the Jews themselves gained the mastery over those who had hated them. Complete reversal. In the providence of God and the mastery of God, God had done it. And he had protected him. And this was the decree. You can read the decree in chapter 8, uh, verse 8 and uh, verse 11. Now you write to the Jews as you see fit in the king's name and seal it with the king's signet ring for a decree with, which is written in the name of the king and, and seal it with the king's signet ring may not be revoked. In verse 11, in them the, the king granted the Jews who were in each and every city the right to assemble and to defend themselves and to take plunder, What's interesting to me that the Jews only defended themselves, they didn't take plunder. They didn't, weren't greedy, they just wanted to defend themselves. That's what they did. So there is this, this conduct of our courage. We, we, we have courage to protect and care for our families. We have courage to confront our enemies. Then there is this, the consequence of it. The consequence of it is, is that our, our enemies are frustrated. And our allies are protected. The people that we want are protected. And then we see, thirdly, the continuation of our courage. In chapter 10, we end the book with these words. Now, King Ahasuerus laid a tribute on the land and on the coastlands of the sea and all the accomplishments of his authority and strength and full account of the greatness of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second only to King Ahasuerus, and great among the Jews, and in favor with the multitude of the kinsmen, one who sought the good of his people, and one who spoke for the welfare of the whole nation. God gave Mordecai a platform. I would submit to you that every one of you here who names the name of Jesus has a platform. A platform that God wants to use for his glory. To advance and protect the cause of his people. It may be in your home. It may be in your business. It may be on the factory line. It it may be in your school. It may be in the social club that you belong to. It may be among the country club crowd. It may be in the choir. It may be among the tradesmen. It may be. In politics, I don't know what it is necessarily, but God gives you a platform just like he gave Mordecai. God advanced him to this platform. God gave him that opportunity. And notice the text says what he used the platform for. The one who sought the good of, the, of his people and one who spoke for the welfare of the whole nation. Now, I'm not a big professional basketball person, but there are a few basketball players that, uh, that I appreciate. St- uh, Stephon Curry is one of them. Not just because the guy is insanely talented, uh, and, and can make threes from you know half court almost at will. He's just insanely talented. But Stephon Curry is a, is a outspoken believer. And whenever he makes a shot or walks onto the court, he does this. It's it's a little uh, sign that he and his mom came up with when he was in college. And here's what he says. I do a little sign on the court every time I make a shot or a good pass, and I pound my chest and point to the sky. It symbolizes that I have a heart for God. I do it every time I step on the floor as a reminder of who I'm playing for. Who are we playing for? Who are we playing for? We have a platform. And God, I think, wants us to use it with the courage, contagious courage, of Mordecai. And that courage that God gives us is something that compels, you know, Mordecai's courage, I think, is an example to me, compels me. But it's also comforting to know, you know, that whether Esther would have done what she did or not, God was going to bring salvation to that people. God's working. Are we going to join him in it? And for those who don't know Christ, look, every act, I think, in the book of Esther is an evidence of providence and not coincidence. God is providentially working to bring this about. And you can either get on the team. You see what happens to those who are allies of Mordecai and you see those who are the enemies. Just pick your camp. Because you can read the Bible and that's where it is. There's only two groups. Those who are for God, those who are against Him. You have to decide today. And our and, and the way you decide is to trust Him. That's how you get on the team for God. And as we, as we come today to break bread and, and, and drink the cup, it seems to me that our confidence comes, is, 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 is a product of our experience of God's compassion and our enjoyment of His presence in our lives. And so those who know Jesus, we come to break the bread, which is a symbol of His body broken, demonstration of His compassion, and His blood shed, a demonstration of His compassion, so that all who believe may be forgiven and be on the team and, and have forgiveness and an eternal life. And I tell you, folks, when I see that Jesus conquered sin and death, it gives me confidence that God is able to protect, able to provide, able to be my Savior. And it also gives me encouragement to, to, to share, encourage, to live by faith. You see, as believers, I don't want the enemies of God to be crushed. I want them to turn and trust in Christ so that they too can join in His blessings. If you're here this morning and you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I'd invite you just to take a few moments as the praise team comes and and leads in song to examine your heart and confess your sin. And then as you feel led, come up to one of the three tables, or one in the back and two up front, and partake of the elements as a reminder of God's compassion and an experience of His joy, of His presence, so that you can leave this place with the courage to live for a God who is both worthy and able. Lord, as we take this bread and and this cup, help us to live with the courage of Mordecai. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: we sing this last song, let's give thanks for the offering. Father, we thank you that you are faithful to us. You are faithful to protect us, to watch over us, to give us hope for the future. Lord, help us to be men and women of courage. To stand for your truth. To stand for Jesus. We thank you that Jesus Christ was courageous on our behalf. He was courageous for For people who did not deserve it Uh, He paid the price for our sins father we just pray that we would give back to you with generous hearts You would enable us uh, as we think about the week ahead um, To stand for your truth Lord to commune with you to seek after you Forgive us for the times when we fail to give you the honor That is due